Welcome to the new era of wealth building podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a treat. Get ready. Uh, the wisdom of the ages knowledge bomb doesn't even begin to describe what Mr. Nyhart will share with you in this session. So listen up, let it sink in, and really hear this incredible training from my old friend, Richard Nyhart. Welcome to the New Era of Wealth Building podcast, formerly the MLMSuccess.com podcast. This show will reveal a new era of team building that has been created by smart contracts on the blockchain and technology that wasn't even available a couple of years ago and most still don't know exist or understand today. We share with you real success stories from real people that are happening right now today. While traditional network marketing companies have fallen into a state of dissipation and delusion, what Mr. Calvert calls a social club, there is one company and organization whose members are progressing and growing their incomes weekly. This organization is led by the host of this podcast, Dale Calvert. Dale has always said that real product and network marketing is people. Dale has always taught, if you build people, people will build the business. We believe network marketing is the number one personal development program on the planet with a compensation plan attached. When you combine wisdom of the ages success principles, proven personal development systems, and a new era opportunity, you have the formula for life-altering success stories. And that is what we share with you in this podcast. So here is your host, who has a goal to develop 500 six-figure earners and 10 millionaires on his team over the next few years. A small-town guy that figured out early in his career that the real product in network marketing is people. And the magic and Ziggs quote, you can have anything in life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. Dale Calvert. If you listen to any of the content over the decades that we've done, there's two fundamental ideas that are repeated over and over. Number one, until you know why, until you know why you're building your business, until you know why, the how doesn't matter. You know, Jim Rohn talked about the reason most people don't achieve more is because they don't want more. Most people get no formula or in a situation where they're just trying to live paycheck to paycheck. You know, Benjamin Franklin said most people die at age 25. What does he mean? They quit dreaming, but they aren't buried until age 65. Zig talked about how can you hit a target you don't have or a target that you can't even see? Earl Nightingale talks about written goals. Those that write down their goals accomplish more than the 97% of don't in his classic personal development training, The Strangest Secret. So how is it possible, and I have to just stop and ask myself this, how is it possible that network marketing leaders allow people to start a business without first establishing why they're building the business? I've never understood that, and I never will. So. You know, way back to my Shackley days, we've all we've been teaching uh, a concept, of, uh, an idea we call top 20 reasons, because Jim Rohn said people need to know more reasons, you know, need to have more reasons. We've 
we've talked about top 20 reasons and top three, that concept. And if you've ever worked with me, you know that that's always been the first step. Today, uh, I've, I've, t- I've tightened it up even more uh, with the new opportunity we're getting ready to launch with Collect Direct. I've refined the systems to the point that if someone has not completed their top 20 and top three reasons sheet, uh, they're going to have very limited access to our advanced lead generation and leadership development training and zero access personally to me. Uh, I just can't do it anymore. And when I think about our track record for developing, you know, strong five, six and seven figure earners on our teams, it kind of speaks for itself. And I have to ask myself, what value is there in having the opportunity as a team member to tap into a franchise type system for building MLM teams if you're not going to follow it? And, and really, who is that on? That's not on that person. It's on me for allowing that. So I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm tightening up everything that I do and how I do it because I have to. You know, we've got to continually to strive and get better. And in my opinion, if you can't follow step one and figure out why you want to build a business, then the odds of you actually building anything is slim to none. I mean, you're ignoring the most recognized wisdom of the age of success principle that's ever been talked about ever in history. And, and really, I just don't want to spend time with someone who's so uninformed. And I don't know. I mean, it, it's almost a form of ego. And, and, and people tell me, oh, Dale, I don't need those reasons. I've been a producer my whole network marketing career. Uh, I don't need to write that stuff down. I know what I want. I know why I'm doing it. And it it just blows my mind because some of these people have been around as long as I have. And they tell me this stuff with a straight face. And it's like, do you really uh, not get the fact that in network marketing, you're not the issue? It's not about you. I'm glad that you get up every day and you've always been a high producer and you know exactly what you, why you're doing it and you don't need to write it down and send it to me or anybody else. I appreciate that. But it ain't about you, dude. It ain't about you, dudette. Do you want a team of 1,000, 10,000, 5,000, 50,000 team members that have their reasons written down and they know exactly what why they're doing the business because reasons is where their motivation comes from. You're either focused on the why or the work. So do you want a team? Dale, I'm, and somebody told me last week, Dale, I'll build a team of 100,000 people here. Now, he's not going to write that down as a reason, He'll, you know, but, but he's going to do it. But he doesn't believe in that re- writing down reason stuff. It's like, how could somebody get so off tilt? How, how's that possible? How do they think that they're so good that they're going to violate wisdom of the ages principles? I, I don't understand it. I don't, I, I just don't understand it. And again, okay, you build a hundred thousand team. Do you want it to grow to a million? 
do you do you do you want your people getting up every day focused on why they're building the business, why they're going to devote some time away from the TV set and entertainment, and start contacting people and doing direct outreach and running online uh, online promotions? Because if that's what you want a team to do, then those that those team members better be real clear why they're doing it. And if you're not intelligent enough to get that, I, I I just don't know what to say about it. It just blows my mind. The second idea that you've heard me beat to death, and I've talked about more or as much as any other business concept ever, and that is as it relates to building a network marketing team in this in this business model, network marketing depends upon duplication. It depends upon duplication. So if that's true, why do why do we let people join our team and act like, well, they've joined and our responsibility ends the day they join? Why do we do that? It's not about just getting them in. It's about getting them in keeping them in, getting them plugged in, and helping them move forward. You know, you you think we would have studied and figured out by now what actually creates duplication since we're working a business model that is dependent upon that. I mean, I actually had someone tell me recently that, uh, you know, on my team, People are free to build their business however they choose. You know, I'm not going to require them to get on any specific training or webinar or fill out any forms or anything like that. Uh, I, I don't have them fill out sheets and forms because they're independent contractors. They can build their business however they choose. And, and you know, I guess that would be fine if we were talking about a single location small business. You know, a mom and pop store. But we're talking about building not a single location. We're talking about build a business model that depends on duplication. And in my opinion, should be run much more like a franchise than some type of mom and pop retail space. I mean, the truth is. You've heard me say 10,000 plus times if you've plugged into our content over the decades, systems duplicate, personality doesn't. Everybody enters the network marketing business model with different levels of personality, different levels of credibility, different failures and successes in their life, uh, different levels of confidence, different personality types. Some people get energy from people. Others, people are drained. And and the differences in us as human beings go on and on and on. And most people never have what I call the leadership development paradigm shift. They're so focused on themselves and their emotions and their time and their time management and their skill sets and their life balance and their mindset development and their negative thinking and canceling out their negative thoughts and on and on and on that they never really grasp the fact that in network marketing, in this business model, it's different than a lot of people treat it, than most people treat it. In network marketing, your long-term income is in direct proportion to the number of leaders that are, and this is the most important word, 
number of leaders that are developed on your team. It's not about going out there and finding a leader. It's about developing homegrown leaders and have the systems in place where you can develop homegrown leaders. Yes, there's nothing wrong with finding a leader. I mean, that happens in corporate America all the time. You know, somebody is is working at Ford Motor Company, Ford, Ford Motor Company and middle management, and they get an offer for Toyota to move and transfer and go into an upper management position, and that happens every day. But internally, building teams, you have to have the systems in place to develop the next level of leaders. Uh, if you run a McDonald's, you have to have a, a McDonald's training system that you can bring people through so you can develop future managers of McDonald's and so on and so forth. Again, in any real business, and especially more than any other in network marketing, your long-term income is in direct proportion to the number of leaders that are developed on your team. You have to help each member maximize their leadership abilities uh, to the very to the very best of their ability through specific books, audio systems to help them start thinking about leadership and becoming a leader. Most network marketers are never talked to about becoming a leader, and they certainly aren't provided the resources and the systems and the and in the process to make that happen. So, again, your long term income is in direct proportion to the number of leaders that are developed on your team. And let me ask you a question: Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that, that leadership moves products? Leadership creates product volume. Distributors are a revolving door. They're coming in one door and going out the back as, as, soon, as fast as we can put them in. But developed leaders stay. Do you believe that? And if you do, then why don't we call, why don't those that call themselves leaders have a step-by-step system in place that will develop the next wave of leaders on their teams. Why is that not in place? Why is that not common as long as the network marketing business model has been around? I have no idea. Why do all the gurus want to talk about developing social media followers instead of leaders? That's a great question. Why do all gurus want to talk about developing your social media following instead of leaders. I mean, early in my career, I understand I was in the leadership development business. And to develop leaders, I had to depend upon one thing, systems. The last thing I wanted to ever do was depend upon my ability to keep the followers fired up and on auto ship. You know, just if they can just keep them on auto ship one more month. But when I look around the 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 industry today, it seems to be, that seems to be the focus over almost every, uh, on almost every network marketing organization and with every network marketer that has a leadership title, uh, they keep, you know, pitching a pie in the sky dream with no franchise type system in place to make those dreams a reality. And by helping team members maximize their own leadership abilities 
and belief in themselves and confidence in themselves, then they'll be able to turn around and help others do the same thing. I mean, how many times have you heard me say systems duplicate, personality doesn't? But I guess subconsciously, when 95% of companies are attempting to promote a wrong, the wrong products, the wrong services at the wrong time in history, they're dealing in consume, a consumable market, which is absolutely over. Uh, we've burnt that market to a crisp. Uh, it really takes an effort to work with people, identify future leaders and help them grow, learn and develop on your team. And I guess some people just have been asking, is it really worth it? I guess. And, you know, for all all you newbies that are going to send me hate email every time I point out the fact that the consumable products network marketing opportunity is over and a 100 percent waste of your time. Uh, I, I just got to go off base for a minute. I got to share this with you. Let me find it. Uh, I got a text from a former network marketing company owner, and I don't want to paraphrase, so here it is. He said, let me pull this up on my phone. I want to make sure I get this exactly right, because it's his words, not mine. I just got this literally last night. Okay, he said, the nutritional supplement MLM is gone. Done. Nada. And that's pretty much is the truth. The nutritional supplement MLM is gone, done, nada. So before you get too hyped up about, yes, I have to start doing reasons and systems and all that, which is critically important, and I hope you do get hyped up about it. But you need to understand you're going to have to get out of consumables and find the right opportunity. And just for the record, I know what it is. I really do. If you want to know what it is, I'll tell you. Here's inside information. This sincerely will be the last network marketing company that most people that join it will ever join. And uh, you can you can check it out. LastMLM.com. LastMLM.com. That's easy to remember. I'm really excited. Let's get back on topic. I'm really excited to bring you this session with special guest, the late, great Richard Nyhart. Uh, Richard passed away too early. He was only 55 when he passed away back in 2007. Richard was one of the best motivational speakers I've ever heard. And unfortunately, many people not never got the chance to hear him speak. Uh, he's the author of the book, How to Survive the Death of the Death of a Dream and Dream Again. Uh, an unbelievable human being. Uh, we uh, we had the opportunity to hire him to come and speak at one of our conferences for our people uh, back in the late 90s. Uh, I actually met Richard back in 1994. And it was, I think it was an MLM International Association, MLM IA, or some some initial, some conference. It was really, I mean, it was just one of those, you know, it's it's the good old boys network marketing conferences uh, that are held. And you guys, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it was in Las Vegas. And at the time, we were getting ready to launch New Image International, and I was beyond busy, and I was very apprehensive and 
uncertain, to be quite frank, about a lot of things. But the owner just kind of insisted. The owner of the company wanted to go to this event. And, you know, he was just the kind of person like to be around uh, what I call the cool kids. You know, they like to be around the movers and shakers, or at least those that they perceive to be movers and shakers. It's like the crazy worry conferences in Vegas or whatever. So, I mean, that was where he lived. That was his wheelhouse. You know, former pre- preacher, baby kisser, handshaker, you know, and if, and if you know me, my personality is, is the opposite. And I'm not saying necessarily one's better than the other, but honestly, there is nothing more nauseating to me than to hang out with a bunch of ego driven three percenters. It's just, it's just nauseating. And he'd had a no clue about the speakers that were going to be speaking at this event, but I checked it out. And I knew the speakers and that, you know, they were going to. And, and unfortunately, again, I knew their backstories. Two were what we would call one hit wonders that then wrote fluff books and beyond fluff books on how to build a network marketing team. Uh, there was four all de- together. The other was a silver spoon baby that had never really worked a day in his life. Uh, I'm sure he was a heavy donator to the association but I do know for a fact he liked flying around big name network markers on his private plane. And, uh, you know, he, he made the offer to me on multiple occasions. And, you know, he was a good guy. He just didn't have a chance. I mean, he never had to work a day in his life. He found network marketing and, you know, network marketers are going to take anybody in. And, and you know, as long as they stay on auto ship, they're good. And that was kind of this guy's M.O. So he had flown around some of the uh, uh, officers in the association. So he got to speak. It was beyond terrible, beyond terrible. It was cringeworthy. Uh, And then the last guy uh, had the misfortune of marrying into a family worth billions of dollars. He was living off his wife. And spending his days playing MLM guru. And and I knew the backstories of these people. So honestly, there was nothing I could learn from these four except what not to do. And there would be no insights that could provide me any information on how I can help average people with above average desire uh, progress and build a network marketing team. And there was going to be another speaker, someone I'd never heard of at the time, some motivational speaker named Richard Nyhart. So I can promise you the last thing I wanted to do was take the time to fly out to Vegas for this event. But the owner of the company was just insistent. So he didn't want to go out there by himself. And so I said, okay, I'll go. And it was a one day event. And uh, I think we flew out on Friday and it started on Saturday and we stayed Sunday and flew back Monday. So we had one good day hanging out in Vegas at the pool, which I was looking forward to that. I actually needed a break at the time. So that's all my mind was really thinking about. But I could get through a one day event, I felt like, no matter how dreadful it was. So uh, I got there a little bit late and my, the owner was giving me nasty looks. But I mean, I slept as long as I could and I, I had no excitement about getting there. But I got there and, you know, I, 
Unfortunately, I had to sit through the four ego-driven speakers who provided absolutely no value. And then in between the speakers, it was just, it was, it was unbelievable. In between the speakers, they gave each other awards, you know, which none of them really deserved. And it was, it was like watching a, a 12 grade skit of some kind. I don't know. It was just, it was bizarre, really. Uh, for me, and maybe it was, wasn't for most people, but man, it was bizarre for me. And at that time and place in history, you know, network marketing was riding a high. I mean, everybody was euphoric about network marketing. I mean, this was right before Success Magazine came out with the We Create Millionaires cover story. And I mean, things were just rolling in this industry, major momentum. And of course, that was before the People tried to figure out how to do it quicker, faster, and easier, and the unintended consequences started to occur. But anyway, that afternoon, I remember thinking, I cannot wait to get out of here. Get back to my room. I have some phone calls that are important that I have to make. But the owner had promised that we're going to go to the Top of the World restaurant that evening, which I love that restaurant, and we were going to meet He'd already made reservations, and we were going to be meeting with a couple of members that had joined us during the pre-launch. So I was looking forward to meeting those people. And, and understand, ladies and gentlemen, at this time, I had sent my resignation letter to National Safety Associates. Uh, at that time, when I resigned, we had the fastest-growing team in that company. And, that, and I'd been there five years. And I was in a situation where I was going to make twenty to $30,000 a month, every month, if I never left my house or not. I had three fully qualified lines, over 10,000 people in three countries around the world. And we were rolling. And we had people that were making good money retailing the products. They were happy. They were making, you know, seven, $800 extra money a month. I mean, just good people that, that extra seven, $800 meant a lot to. And our systems were in place and refined, and we had great leadership that could teach them and do the quick starts. They could do their own quick starts. And, I mean, it was just, I was rolling. And, you know, when I told my parents and my wife and everybody that I knew that I was going to make this shift to this weight loss product company, they all knew I was crazy. I mean, they were concerned because, you know, I would grinded for so long. And now I'd got to a point where I'm making a quarter million dollars a year. I got time and money. I am debt free. I mean, when I entered that company five years prior, I was over $50,000 in excess debt. I owed the IRS. Uh, I was in a stressful situation. Now all my bills are paid off. I'm debt free. Uh, I've got a great income coming in. I've got the time to enjoy it. I can take my kids wherever I want to take my kids. I got three daughters I need to to keep fed and in private school and and life is good. And why in the world, Dale, would you start all over with a brand new company? And and I remember telling them, I said, look, if it goes, it will set me up for the rest of my life. And if it doesn't go, I've got the skill sets. I've got the mindsets. I can do it again. As long as I find a timely company where the timing's right and and they have a product or service that I believe in. And but I had a lot of apprehension because my last check from 
from NSA was over 25000 Then I resigned, and my first check from this new company was $698. So, I mean, you know, I, there was some apprehension. And it's like, I don't want to take the time to go out and listen to these ego-centered people. I just, I, I did not want to be there. But I've also learned, even when you have the guts to pivot, the guts to make the pivot, and most network markers don't. Most network markers ride the wave right straight up, and then they watch their their check, you know, just kind of dwindle away over time, and then they fade off into the sunset, and it's over because they don't have the guts to pivot. But even when you do, there's doubts, and I definitely had doubts at that time because we hadn't really, we were just getting started, and. You know, looking back on that day and time, I sincerely believe that God put me in that room that day to hear the training Richard Richard Nyhart shared. I'm so thankful that I got a recording of it that you're about to hear. And for me, it was confirmation that the systems we were teaching and what former distributors fondly call the yellow manual we're on point. And as many of you know, that company went on a legendary run. Thousands of lives were changed. We developed an organization of well over 60,000 people around the United States and Canada. Over 200, five, six, and seven figure earners came out of that organization, that company. And those experiences that experienced that run will tell you they haven't ever seen anything or experienced anything like it before or since in their life. And to those that may be listening to this, I would just say, hold on, hold on, because I sincerely believe the best is yet to come. And I mean that. I mean that. Uh, our biggest event with that company, we had 5,000 people in Rupp Arena with 205, six and seven figure earners, uh, I, I, my plan is to double that. And I know what you're about to hear on this audio is the solid rock foundation all teams must be built on. I know that. I know that. So let's go to the Wisdom of the Ages recording that was done 30 years ago. And honestly, is more important today than any time in the history of network marketing team building. Ladies and gentlemen, I am very thankful to be able to share with you the wisdom of the ages principles from a man that gave me exactly what I needed to hear when I needed to hear it. Richard Nyhart. Association for this honor. I was uh, privileged to speak to this group last year, and to have been asked once was an honor. To be asked the second time is a big surprise and a thrill. 
And uh, I want to take just a moment to acknowledge some people who in the past year have become not only uh, working associates, but uh, personal friends. Of course, Mike Sheffield, who is the president of uh, the MLMIA. Thanks, Mike, uh, for your very kind introduction. Wow. Hardly wait to hear what I got to say. Uh, I want to acknowledge this very beautiful lady right over here. Doris, I want you to stand. Just stand up for a second. Doris Wood. Uh, I love you. Appreciate you. Yeah. And I see uh, several familiar faces. Uh, Fred, it's nice to see you. Keith Leggett and uh, just different ones that we met last night. Uh, how many of you have never seen me before now? Let me see your hands. Well, so much for being famous. <laughs> I guess that means you're going to need a couple of minutes to look me over. Can you hear me? If I move away from this, can you hear me? They're <laughs> talking to this. How we doing? We all right? Okay, y'all going to need a couple of seconds to look me over. I, I understand that. If I had never seen myself, I'd want to look me over too. Uh, very brief biography. I uh, began life at a very, very early age. And as time progressed, I grew older, and this is how I turned out. Uh, I work in the field of entrepreneurial assessment and development. I spend a lot of time with people like you, and trust me, I've been looking you over. It doesn't take me long to make up my mind anymore. I like you. There's not one person here this afternoon that I wish would leave. I want you all to stay right where you are. I know something about your hopes. I know something about your dreams. I know that you have guts and gumption. I know that you have intelligence and integrity. I know that you are self-selected strivers. You are the great American dreamers. What I know about you makes me want to give you the very best that I have to give. I'm going to step down off this podium here. Uh, as we kind of get acquainted, uh, you'll find that I tend to direct most of my questions and my uh, comments to people who sit in the back of the audience. Uh, please don't be alarmed. Most of my questions are quite simple. Uh, well, I'm really hooked up here, aren't I? Uh, why don't some of you towards the back, and I know you've been in meetings all day. How many of you have been in meetings all day long? And you're thinking, this guy better be either real good or real short. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to kind of get acquainted here, those of you towards the back, why don't some of you tell us uh, your name, uh, let's see, your age, how much you weigh, <laughs> and maybe how much money you made last year. Who would like to be first? <laughs> You're looking at me like a cow looks at a new gate. <laughs> All right, you don't have to do that, but what I would like for you to do is tell us your name and, and listen carefully, if you knew. If you knew it was going to be your last meal, what would you want to eat? Please don't look at me in that tone of voice. There's a reason for this. Uh, let's go ahead and get started with this handsome guy in the in the plaid shirt and the great-looking Argyle socks. Keep an eye on those socks, bud. I might walk off with them. Your name, sir? I'm Richard, and your name? Brian. Brian? Yeah. Nice to meet you, Brian. Brian, if you knew it were going to be your last meal, what would you want that meal to be? Where? What? He's thinking. It's going to take a long time to think. Lobster? All right, fine. You can be seated. Thank you very much. I had one lady say, Richard, I've been allergic to shrimp all of my life. If I knew it were going to be my last meal, I would eat all of the shrimp I could possibly eat because, after all, it's the very worst that could happen to me. Yeah, let's try somebody else here. Uh, hey, Dave. Uh, let's see. Where do, I saw Dave somewhere. Uh, let's try just 
lady in the in the pretty purple right here. She's not even looking at me. Yeah, right there. You. Yeah. I'm Richard. What's your name? On the back row. Yeah. What is your name? Margaret. Margaret, I'm delighted to meet you. Margaret, I'd come back and shake your hand, but they've got me tied here to this uh, thing, so I'm not going to be able to move around too much. <laughs> Golly, look at this. Can we get a little more rope here? I think y'all, they didn't know who they're dealing with when they <laughs> hooked, hooked this thing up. If you knew it were going to be your last meal, what would you want that meal to be? Come on. Peking duck. Okay. All right. All right. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, hey, Rod, how about you, sir? You knew it was going to be your last meal. This guy's a, a helicopter pilot, brought his helicopter pilot jacket. Rod Cook. All the great anti optimists that are on the market because I live forever. Oh, <laughs> one in every crowd. One in every crowd. Yeah, yeah. All right, now, be honest with me. How many of y'all in the last couple of seconds have had it kind of pass through your mind what it is you'd eat if you knew it was going to be your last meal? Come on, raise your hands. I'm going to count to three, and on the count of three, I want everybody all at the same time to just shout it out. Are you ready? Here we go. One, two, three. All right. Whoa. You're wondering why in the world is a man asking questions like that? Here's why. Here's why. Psychologists say that if you will think about food just prior to a learning experience, that you will retain more information. So you see what I've just done for you. <laughs> How many of you thought of seafood or some variety of seafood? Let me see your hands. Psychologists say you are predominantly left-brained. You tend to be more logical, more analytical. How many of you thought of beef or some recipe that includes beef? Could I see your hands, please? Psychologists say you are predominantly right-brained. You tend to be more intuitive, more creative, more passionate. How many of you didn't think of either one? Let me see your hands, please. <laughs> All right. Well, uh... Psychologists say you have no brain, <laughs> but that's okay, I, I brought pictures. <laughs> yes, sir? Can I move the mic up a little? Okay. How, why don't I just put it on my tie here? How's that? Yeah, maybe, Phil, you could get me a little more rope here. That's right. We don't want to just spend too much time right up here. You're going to find that I don't just say it, I spray it. You get the feeling like you might be at SeaWorld after a while. That's right, so we need to kind of spread it around a little bit. There, that's better. That's better. All right. When the great English novelist Charles Dickens took up his pen to write The Tale of Two Cities. He opened with these words. They were the best of times, and they were the worst of times. That simple statement paints a perfect picture of the American economy. We are living in the best of times. Statistically, it is easier for an average American to become a millionaire today than at any time in history. Studies show there is a new millionaire created every 52 minutes in this country. We are living in the worst of times. Statistically, it is harder to find a job today, a good paying job today than at any time in our history. And it's more difficult for a person to get by on an hourly wage today than at any time in our history. We have developed a whole new economic subclass that we call the working poor. Men and women, husbands and wives, parents holding down at least one, sometimes two, even three jobs, and are still not able to keep pace with demands of living in this country. Why this study in contrast, this dichotomy 
the worst of times, the best of times. It's due largely to a massive global economic shift. This is by no means the first global economic shift that our world has seen. Tracing back far enough in history, we are able to identify at least four world economies. The first was an economy that was based on hunting and gathering. Our ancient ancestors lived off the land. They followed herds. They dug up roots. They gathered nuts and berries. The business model for their economy was hunting and gathering. In time, people began to settle down. They learned to till the ground. They learned to plant crops in deliberate rows. They learned to cultivate and to harvest, and in so doing, they created a new economic model. What did we call this economy? Anybody? We called it agriculture, and for most of the world's history, our economy has been built on agriculture. In fact, as recent as the turn of this century, 90% of America's economy was built into agriculture. As of November 26th, 1995, what percentage of America's workforce is involved in agriculture? 2.5%. From 90% at the turn of the century to 2.5% in the last five years of the century, would you agree with me this is a major global economic shift? Where did everybody go? They left the farms and they moved to the cities to work where? In the factories. And what did we call this new economy? We called it industry. Industry reached its peak in 1945 when 50% of the American workforce was involved in manufacturing. Why 1945, anybody? World War II. After World War II, manufacturing went into a decline. Today, about 22% of the American workforce is involved in manufacturing. Spinning off of and out of manufacturing is a kind of sister industry that we call service. Today, about 76% of the people working in this country are working in service industry jobs. Travel, health care, insurance, real estate, entertainment. But for the first time since the advent of the service economy, we are seeing a decline. We are seeing these jobs go away. Jobs that are mechanical by nature will be replaced by a machine. Jobs that impede the flow of information will be replaced by computers. Here's an example. For many years, the travel industry made their money from the airlines, a 10% commission paid to them on every ticket sold. How many of you have ever used a travel agent? They made money off of that. It was a 10% commission. Last year, Delta informed travel agents no more. From now on, we're going to pay you a $50 cap. There was a scream. There was an anguish cry. You can't do this to us. They said it'll never work. Did it work? It certainly did. There's an industry that's on the road. Real estate. Should I decide to move to Colorado Springs, I would locate a realtor. What does this realtor know that I need to know? What information does he have access to that I must have to find a house? He's got access to what we call the multiple listing service. I call the realtor, he picks me up, takes me around the city, shows me the houses. Well, nowadays we don't have to do that. You can simply tap into the internet. I want a four-bedroom house, two and a half baths. I want a fireplace, on and on and on. Here's another industry that is on the road. A few weeks ago, I sat in the office of an estate planning attorney, and he told me that, and interestingly enough, he's going into network marketing. Why is he going into network marketing? He said, I graduated from the University of Mississippi with a doctorate of jurisprudence, and uh, I have made my living in estate planning. It's 
For years, we created estate plans, living trust, business trust, in the same way that Patrick Henry did to the first governor of Virginia. We custom designed them. In time, we created boilerplates, and uh, we would simply finesse and massage them and customize them to the needs of our clients. Nowadays, people are able to buy the software and create their own. In other words, he says, I see the writing on the wall. In time, my job is going to be rendered obsolete. So we've moved from a society of hunters and gatherers. We've moved from that into agriculture, from agriculture into the job. And now we are witnessing the end of the job. The job is a social dinosaur that has outlived its evolutionary purpose. You say, Richard, is there not work left to be done? Of course there is. But how many of you know this work is going to be done differently? Work will not be packaged in eight-hour-a-day jobs. It may interest you to know that the job as defined by the industrial age did not become law until about 1938 under the Franklin D. Roosevelt administration. In years past, work was done differently. It was governed by the clouds, by the rain, by the wind, by the snow. We've become accustomed to this way of working. And I could stand up here and discuss the ethics of the job shift in the same way that we could discuss the ethics of manifest destiny, the encroachment of Anglo-European farmers on land once held by the Indians. Put yourself in the place of the Indian that watched as their buffalo herds were killed off and farms were established in their place. Well, we've watched the farms disappear, people moving to the cities, and now the jobs are going away. And I wish I could stand here and tell you that we've identified the problem. We'll blame it on overseas competition. We'll blame it on politics. No, it's the job as an entity. It's the job as a way of doing work. That's what's going away. I was on a flight from Phoenix to Atlanta a few weeks ago. Sitting next to me was Bonnie King, the president of the American Society of Artists, Composers, and Musicians. She said, Richard, the last two years have been the most difficult in my life. I was faced with laying off, discharging 100 of our employees. She said, it's one thing to discharge someone because of incompetence or dishonesty. But when you have to sit and look into the face of someone who's done everything right, and not only are they a loyal employee, they are a trusted friend. And you have to tell this trusted friend, you no longer have a job. She says, I can't eat, I can't sleep, I've cried more in the last two years than I have in the past uh, 20 years. Uh, again, we could talk about the ethics. What about the ethics of uh, nuclear power and the ethics of dropping an atomic bomb on Hiroshima? Do you understand that what we're talking about here is the evolution of an economy? Each time a more effective culture, a more effective lifestyle, a more effective economy arises, it takes the place of the one that was there before. So the jobs are not coming back. That's the bad news. The good news is that there's a whole new economy being born, even as I speak. This economy is not driven by herds or crops or machinery or service. This economy is being driven by innovation, by personal initiative, and by the entrepreneurial spirit. We've nicknamed it the idea economy, and we are on the cusp of this economy. This economy uh, is here. It's happening all around us. How many of you know these changes are taking place? Absolutely. Raise your hand. Yeah, no, how about, yeah nod at me. That's right. Okay. Just want to make sure you're with me. I know it's been a long day here. Uh, this economy is uh, all about the preparation, the packaging, and uh, the presentation of ideas. Ideas 
in new and interesting ways. And as far as I'm concerned, network marketing is the ultimate business model for the idea economy. It's the greatest economic opportunity in the history of the world. There's a new home-based business being started in this country about every 30 seconds. I, uh, in fact, uh, Business Week did days did a study on this uh, called Rethinking Work. They state that the economy is changing, jobs are changing, the workforce is changing. Is America ready? How many of you believe that America's ready, that you are ready, the people that are in your organization are ready? I submit that by and large, we are not ready. This is the challenge that I have dedicated this part of my life to, preparing people for the challenges of the idea economy. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about for just a little while. But before I do that, I want to give you my definition of wisdom, and you can write this down. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. You've heard it said that knowledge is power. I submit that knowledge is potential power. How many of you know somebody that can discuss intelligently almost any subject from politics to prunes, but their personal and professional life is going absolutely nowhere? I mean, they cannot pass the milk without giving you a dissertation on the history of the dairy industry. They are masters of trivial pursuit. They have got every self-help book ever written. They can call off the names of Napoleon Hill and Maxwell Maltz and Ogmandino as if they were old family friends. And yet they're still driving a 20-year-old car and they can't pay their lap bill. Would you agree with me? It really doesn't matter so much what you know as what you can do with what you know. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Yeah, go ahead and clap. You're going to clap, clap right. Yeah, do it. I speak a lot better. I'll help you out. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty good, but I think we can do a whole lot better, so I'll give you a chance to kind of warm up here. I live in Arizona. Uh, most of you live uh, or think of Arizona as cactus country, which it is. Uh, the land of the giant sawar, the Octeo, and uh, the Choya. But interestingly enough, I'm about 90 minutes from the largest ponderosa pine forest in the world. I want you to picture a picnic scene up on the Mogollon Rim. In the center of the campsite is a fire, been burning for a couple of days, and around that campfire is a four-year-old, and his name is Perry. And for the past two days, we've been keeping a watchful eye on Perry so that he doesn't venture too close to the flames. Well, now the picnic's over, and the fire has died out, and Perry's creeping closer. And once again, somebody reaches out, grabs him by the seat of the britches, and pulls him back and says, Perry, don't get too close. Just because the flames have gone out, the rocks are still hot, if you touch him, you'll be burned. Now, what would you expect from a four-year-old? Is he going to look up with eyes filled with appreciation and say, I want to thank you for that? <laughs> Chances are, had you not apprised me of the potential danger, I would have inadvertently laid my hands on the stones and been burned. Is that what you'd expect from a four-year-old? Now, what has Perry got to do? Perry's got to touch the rocks. And now Perry has wisdom burned into the tips of his fingers. I submit that wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Now, the wisdom that we're going to share with you here this evening is going to come in one of two forms. The first is what I call an aha. Everybody say aha. What's an aha? One guy said, that means you got the right one, baby. I said, excuse me. He said, you know the Diet Pepsi commercial? You got the right one, baby? Uh-huh. I said, no, sir, this is not an aha. This is an aha. What's an aha? The light bulb went on. It's an enlightenment. Aha! 
Second form of wisdom I call a wow. Everybody say wow. What's a wow? A wow, at least in this context, is the proof source that validates the aha. In other words, you take the bright idea out of the context in which it was received, you put it into brackets, you plug her in and watch her work, and when you can't help but just go, wow. Now, I submit that everything you hear in this conference really works. We didn't think this stuff up last night. These are time-tested strategies that have energized the lives of thousands of people. How many of you know that success secrets really aren't secrets? No, they've been around for the longest time. I remember back in, I won't tell you how long ago, somebody gave me a vintage copy of Think and Grow Rich. It dated all the way back to 1940. I flipped through those pages and I thought, oh my Lord, it's too late. This has been around since 1940. They beat me to it. That was 20 years ago. I meet people every day that never heard of Think and Grow Rich, never heard of Napoleon Hill, have never unearthed these treasures of the power of transforming thought into its spiritual and its material equivalent. And Doris, the longer I live, the more amazed I become at how surrounded we are by nuggets of gold that can be transformed into almost anything our hearts desire. They're laying there at our feet and we've never even recognized them. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the ahas. There's maybe a couple of wows, but i got to tell you this. Most of the payoffs in life don't come as ahas. How many of you know that? Yeah, they don't come as, as bright ideas. How many of you all came here to make a lot of money? Let me see your hands. Come on. How many of you came here to be successful in your life? Let me see your hands. I hate to break it to you, but it ain't going to happen. <laughs> Not here. Oh, don't look at me like that. It's going to happen. It was Thoreau who said, the person that advances confidently in the direction of their dreams and endeavors to live the life they have imagined, they will meet with a success that is unexpected in common hours. I submit that you'll not only realize your dreams, but you're going to be kicking yourself in the pants because you didn't do it sooner. Your dreams are going to come true, but they're not going to come true in a seminar. They're not going to come true in a symposium. You can spend the rest of your life going from one workshop and conference to another, become a hardcore junkie on success and still never advance in the direction of your dreams. When do the real payoffs come, folks? It comes when we take this information and we go out into the real world and make a real world application. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about some things that it's going to take for not only us, but for the people in our organizations to prepare themselves for the challenges of the idea economy. And when I say that we're really not ready, I'm saying that based on the fact that we're coming out of the industrial age and there's not a whole lot, Clinton, in our past that has prepared us for the challenges of self-employment. How many of you came up through the public school system? Let me see your hands. We sat there, rows of little heads. Blonde heads and red heads and brown heads. And we had teachers that yakety yak and filled our heads with information. We were taught according to an age-old system called rote. goes back to the Latin rota, which means to spin. This is where the term universe and university came from. And that's a whole different seminar, but it was just around and around and around. And 98% of everything we learned, we forgot within the first 72 hours. We graduated, and see, makes you feel pretty good, knowing that 72 hours after you got your diploma, you forgot just about everything that you learned. Yeah, we got the diploma, we got the degree, we went on to get the job. We got our job with a certain set of assumptions. That assumption was shaped by the industrial age, in the 40s and the 50s. Like Grandpa and like Daddy, I'm going to get on with the company, and if I do my job and just keep showing up, after 30, 40, 50 years, I'm going to get my gold watch and my pension, a kick in the seat of the pants, going to buy a camper, me and the missus going to to Lake Louise and die. 
<laughs> yeah. In the 70s, it was how far and how fast can I go up in my job? In the 80s, it's how can I keep my job? In the 90s, it's oh God, am I ever going to find another job? And so the whole paradigm has shifted. And we're seeing people saying, all right, if that's the way you're going to be, I'll just go into business for myself. And so they're going into business for themselves, but they're going into self-employment with a job mentality. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? Everybody say goodbye job. Hello me. That was pretty good, but I think you can do better. Goodbye job. Hello me. Wonderful. Now, I'm not suggesting anybody get up, rush to the phones, call your boss, and tell him to shove it. If you've got a job, you probably want to hang on to it. But it's time we understand that the ground rules are changing. And we must learn to recognize and adapt to these changes and to embrace new technologies and to emulate or model the success that, of those that have gone before us. 84% of the American workforce today requires a controlled environment to be productive. Now, you executive directors, you organization leaders, you've got to understand that the people that are in your organizations are coming out of the industrial age. Their whole concept of work has been shaped by the industrial age. You get up, you go to work, you put in your eight hours, you come home, grab a bud, head for the living room, sit down and watch The Simpsons. 84% of the American workforce requires a controlled environment to be productive. That means if you've got a job that takes five people, you've got to make one of them a boss to tell the other four what to do. Because if they don't have a boss, they're going to sit there on that dead eddy and wait until somebody tells them it's all right. Yeah. 14% can be put on assignment, left alone to follow through with a minimum of supervision, but only 2%, only 2% can actually plan their own work. And what we're seeing now are people by the hundreds of thousands. In fact, there are now almost 40 million home-based businesses in this country. According to Link Research out of New York, there are almost 40 million tax-paying entities that are based out of their home. Within the next 15 years, half of the people in this country will be working out of their home. And most of those people are going to fail unless they come to understand the dynamics of personal management. That means that I must Organize within so that I can organize from without. In other words, we've got to have a system. How many of you ever eaten at McDonald's? How many of you will admit to have ever eaten at McDonald's? <laughs> Does McDonald's make the best burger you've ever tasted? Horrible. You know, it doesn't matter where I ask that question, Carol. I can ask it in Fairbanks or Philadelphia. I get the same answer every time. That vigorous shaking of the head, that emphatic, unequivocal, no. Why do they sell so many? How could an organization that specializes in hamburgers that are so distasteful <laughs> sell so many? Huh? They've marketed an idea? I hear french fries, I hear apple pies, I hear long... Why do they sell so many? They have a system. Jay said it, this gentleman right here. They have a system. It doesn't matter if you get a, a Big Mac in Seattle or Sri Lanka, it's going to taste the same. That doesn't say much, but it will taste the same. I submit that if you have a system, if the people in your organizations have a system, they don't have to be the brightest. They don't have to be the most beautiful. You can watch them go stand there scratching your head and say, that gal's throwing a box of rocks, I don't know how she does it. 
But if you have a system that you understand, if you have a system that you not only understand, but you have a reason for making it work, you're not only going to realize your dreams, you're going to surpass them. If you all got a good look at this jacket, it's hotter than an old folks' home in here. I'm going to turn it off, or take it off. I don't know what's going to happen with these cords and stuff. You doing all right? Yeah, that's it, Doris. I have to show off my trendy suspenders here. It's Christmas time, and I knew Doris like that. That's right. All right. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an aha right now. If you want to want to go ahead and write this down, let's talk a little bit about time. It was Benjamin Franklin who said, "To love life is to love time because time is the stuff that life is made of." How many hours did we have when we were born? Any guesses? The day you came into this world all red, wrinkled, bawling, and squalling. How many hours did life bequeath upon you? Twenty-five thousand hours. And that is all. And I don't see any newborn babies in here, which means we've spent a whole lot of those hours and we don't have many of them left. And if we're going to create our dreams, they're going to have to be created within the context and the confines of the hours that we have left. Let's talk a little bit about managing those hours. In fact, we can't really manage them. There is no such thing as managing time. How many of you know that we cannot manage time? Can't do it. One person knows that. The rest of you are thinking, well, can we stop the sun from, from rising? Can we stop it from setting? We can't. You can't speed it up. You can't slow it down. Time, ladies and gentlemen, is little more or less than a continuum of events. A continuum of events that move from the past into the present and on into the future. Time is simply a dimension in which things change. And so rather than talking about time control, it's very important that we talk instead about event control. Now, while I'm on the subject of control, what are some areas of our lives over which we have absolutely no control? Can you think of a few? Areas of our lives over which we have absolutely no control. Sleeping? You can't control... Okay, so we're talking about the need for sleep. Okay, some of us need more than others. Uh, okay, so those would be basically our physiological needs. Okay, for food. Okay, uh, we, we cannot. Okay, need for this. Okay, air. All right, we're getting pretty basic here. Yeah, what are some other areas we cannot control? Weather. All right, we cannot control the weather. Some other areas we cannot control? Other people? That's interesting. Can we or can we not control other people? No. We can? We can. We can't? I used to think I could. What's your name, sir? Jim? Jim, I used to think I could control other people by the sheer force of my personality. And then I became a father. <laughs> Have you ever tried to feed a one-year-old baby girl cream peas? There she sits, all but immobilized in a hot chair, looking up at me as if to say, don't even think about it. You don't need them, I don't need them. I'm looking down at this child, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and everything on the inside of me says, you will eat the cream peas. I am your father. I am 26 years older than you. I outweigh you by a hundred and none of your business. You will eat the cream peas. Now... My left brain reasons there are only two ways this child can breathe. One is through her nose, and the other is through her mouth. If I plug one, the other has to open. So, I plug her nose, and predictably enough, her mouth pops open. And in one fluid motion, I insert the peas. Now, I am a compassionate man, and I love my daughter very much. But I am determined to impose my will on her. So, I take my fingers from her nose, and... <laughs> 
Now, have I forced this baby to eat the cream peas? No, I have not. Three and a half seconds later, I removed my hand and learned the meaning of jet propulsion. And it still amazes me how that a little tiny spoonful of cream peas can cover a grown man from his eyebrows all the way down to his knees. We cannot control our need for sleep. We cannot control our need for food. Uh, airway. We certainly cannot control the attitudes and the behaviors of other people. Now, I don't know about food. I was uh, out in Texas doing a seminar, and we got on food. You know, you can't control what you eat. And, and I, I was saying you could, and a guy on the front row is just shaking his head vigorously. And uh, I said, excuse me, sir, uh, you, you, you cannot control what you eat? Uh, he said, no. I said, well, sure you can. He said, you need to meet my wife. <laughs> he said, half the time I don't even know what she puts on my plate, but I eat it. I said, but you don't have to. He bumped the guy next to him and said, he needs to meet my wife. <laughs> There's a lot of things we cannot control, but it might amaze you to know that we spend about 80% of our time attempting to control what we cannot control. How many of y'all can relate? And how does it make you feel? Yeah, what does it do to your stress level? Yeah, I was doing an event in Oakland, California about two years ago in the Oak Park Hotel. I was on the 16th floor of the Oak Park Hotel. From my window, I could take in one of the most beautiful cityscapes in the civilized world. There was the Golden Gate Bridge, the Oakland Bay Bridge, the Quartz Tower, the Transamerica Pyramid. It was absolutely gorgeous. But on my window was the deposit made by one of the multitudinous pigeons that environed nearby. Figure that one out. I'm sitting here trying to take in this beauty, and yet all I can see is that little white streak. How many compulsive cleaners do we have here? I'm on the 16th floor. I can't get to it, but it's got to go. It's just got to go because it's obstructing my view. It is taking what would be a perfect situation and turning it into something less. It's got to go. But it ain't going. So I just finally sat back in my chair and had to come to terms with this thing. How many of you know there's certain things we're just going to have to come to terms with? Yeah. You either ha have a problem, you're living with the problem, or you are the problem. <laughs> and there's some things that we just simply have to adapt to. Now, what are some areas that we can control? Over what do we have total control? Help me out here. Ourselves? Can you think of anything else? That's just about it, folks. And the reason that I'm pointing this out is because many of us, for the first time in our lives, are going into business for ourselves. I was on a flight with an executive from a, a, an aeronautics firm. And as we flew along, uh, we broached the subject of, of self-employment. He asked me, Richard, what is the greatest challenge faced by people that are going into business for themselves? And I thought for a moment, and my answer to this executive was, the greatest challenge for these people is thinking of their business as a business. How many of you have seen that? You've made that observation. Yeah, we're swept into this on the tide of emotion. I'm going into business for myself. Good, bad job. Hello, me. Going to fire my boss. Going to be a millionaire by Tuesday. Yeah. And we just into this thing. And then that first morning of being in business for yourself and the alarm clock rings and there you lay. You're thinking, alarm clock, I don't need to get up. I'm in business for myself. There ain't nobody going to tell me when to get up. 
I get up when I want to get up. I watch TV when I want to watch TV. You start catching up on, you know, the old reruns, and yeah, you're in business for yourself. You know? And it's very important that we think in terms of, how many of you know that going into network marketing is not like getting a lottery ticket? It's not like winning the big one, you know? My mother, she's still waiting to win the big one. I love her, but, you know, every time I talk to her, honey, listen, she'll read the outside of this envelope, and it says, you may already be a winner. <laughs> mother, that is just a marketing. Oh, no, honey, listen, dear Mr. and Mrs. Nyhart, Route 3, Box 198, you are one of five people in your county that have been selected. I say, mother, they have contacted every living person. <laughs> what makes you think they're going to contact Larry and Margie Nyhart? You know, one of, if you're one of five people, why did they send you a computerized letter. I mean, they send it. What are you going to do with a woman like that? <laughs> She's your mother. You're going to love her. You're going to be nice to her in case she wins the darn thing, I guess. <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. And there are people that are making the sad mistake of waiting until they get the pink slip. They're waiting until they retire. And they're finding out that Ed McMahon ain't going to call. And they're finding out that the publisher's clearing out sweepstakes van ain't going to pull up in front of the house. It's not going to happen. No. And I understand this because I have been affected by this job shift. How many of y'all have been affected by it? At the age of 35, Jim, I thought I had it all put together. Yeah, and then I forgot where I put it. I mean, I looked around and it was gone. And I was broke. I had a business in a trustee sale. I had a house in foreclosure. My luxury car. My beautiful luxury car. It was a power seat. It had power everything. And the power seat broke. And it didn't break at my, at the length of my legs. It broke right up close to the steering wheel. And I couldn't get it fixed. Mr. Hotshot driving around like this. Keep the window down to have one elbow free. And I was broke. And I'm here to tell you, it ain't nothing worse than being broke. Unless you're sick. There ain't nothing worse than being broke and sick. Unless you're stupid. There ain't nothing worse than being broke and sick if you're stupid. Unless you're ugly. If you're broke and sick and stupid and you're ugly, you're really in bad shape. But I came to realize that never again would I be able to look at one source of income in terms of security. We started creating several separate sources, and that's exactly what network marketing is all about. As far as I'm concerned, it is the greatest opportunity. How many of you believe that this is really the greatest opportunity? Deep down in your heart, this is something that people need to be made aware of. Absolutely. Clap your hands big and loud if you believe that. But it's one thing, Jennifer, to declare I'm going into business for myself. As of today, I am self-employed. As of today, I can number myself among the business owners of America. I ain't got a pot to, but I am one of the business owners of America. I am now, you know, but it's going to require some changes. And I guess the area that, that Claire and I work in, in fact, right now, Claire, I want you to stand up. Everybody turn around. Look at this beautiful lady. This is my partner here. And, uh, you know, she, we got this little sign back there that says, we'll speak for food. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, Glad to have her here, but what we have committed ourselves to is empowering and inspiring, preparing. Robert Butlin, Robert, one of my very dearest friends, I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for this guy. Great suit, Robert. You know that time you showed up at the Marriott and you lost your shirt? I've been telling that story all over the country. 
Yeah, he's looking at me like I'm going to kill you. That's a great story. Robert lost his shirt, not not metaphorically, literally. <laughs> he shows up and he's, never mind. Uh, <laughs> where, oh, going into business for ourselves is going to require some fundamental changes. It's going to require things from us that has never been required before. In the past, you have a job. You didn't have to be particularly bright. You didn't have to be particularly beautiful. You just do your job. We've been conditioned to mediocrity. How many of you are sick and tired of mediocrity? You know there just has to be something more out there. You went into this because you knew there had to be something more. And it's going to require things from us that have never been required. We're going to have to become very proactive. Do you understand what I mean by proactive? It's an industrial term, and uh, we hear it a lot in management literature. I'm going to show you what I'm talking about here, being proactive as opposed to being reactive. I'm going to do a real quick little paradigm shift, and I realize this is an oversimplification, but I want you to follow along with me here. You're either going to face life as a reactive or a proactive person. How many of you know somebody that something is always happening to them? <laughs> They've either lost their checkbook or their car keys or their dog or their job or their house or their spouse. I mean, something is always happening to them. I flew into Fort Lauderdale a couple of weeks ago. The limo driver picked me up. We were on our way to the hotel. We are talking about a recent hurricane that I had been in. And uh, he said, you know, there's another limo driver. We call him Captain Kirk. He's a space cadet. He said if it wasn't for bad luck, he wouldn't have any luck at all. He has an expensive limo. He knew the storm was coming. And we told him, you better put it in a garage. He said, I'll do you one better. I'm getting out of Fort Lauderdale. I'm driving to Vero Beach. He said, guess where the can hit. Yeah, Vero Beach, and that's some folks that like the guy sitting on a bar stool staring down into the bubbles in his beard. <laughs> I've been laughed at. I've been lied to. I've been cheated. I've been kicked and cussed, and the only reason I didn't hang around here is to see what's going to happen to me next. <laughs> you know, life is just one great cosmic conspiracy that has singled them out for abuse. Yeah, just things always happening. Always just kind of, you know, watching and, and waiting, you know, just they just they just let things happen. Proactive people, they make things happen. How many of you know there's not enough good stuff? It's going to happen on its own. You're going to have to get out and make it happen. And I'm not talking about being premature. I'm not talking about pushing and shoving. I'm talking about recognizing an opportunity while reactive folks are sitting there scratching their heads waiting for all the green lights. You just take off. And you take the red lights and the green lights as they come. You see, our world is a study in perpetual motion. Life is just one great phenomenal motion. From the earth's crust to the cells subdividing in our bodies, there is continual action. And unless we act, it is all but certain that we will be acted upon. Reactive people, they worry a lot. Can you think of any good thing that comes from worry? Can you think of one good thing that comes from worry? Anybody? One lady in L.A. raised her hand. She said, well, I'm going to help you lose weight. <laughs> and I had to agree with her. There's nothing like a good clinical depression to take off 30 pounds. You feel like shooting yourself, but you won't because you haven't looked this good since you were in high school. But aside from that, is there any one good thing that comes from worry? Can you think of one good thing? Hey, folks, most of what you worry about ain't going to happen. And if it does, you've got two options. You can either take care of it or not take care of it. Now, if you can handle it, why worry? And if you can't handle it, why worry? Proactive people, they are not naive. They understand that our economic future is bleak unless we take action. But rather than worry, they simply plan. Reactive people complain a lot. You know any recreational uh, complainers that are always focusing on problems? Huh? You know people like that? I mean, they criticize the cure for the common cold. I swear it doesn't get too dark, but that they can't pull the shades down. 
Always complaining. Couldn't make them happy if you hung them with a new rope. And problems. Always focusing on problems. Now, I want to just, this isn't going to cost you anything here. I just want to tell you something. Be very careful who you tell your problems to, all right? Only tell your problems to people that are in a position to help you, all right? Only in a position to help you. You don't have to talk to your hairstylist. You don't have to talk to the kid that carries your groceries to the car, the guy working at the filling station. How many of you know people that are just always talking about the bad stuff that are happening to them? How many of you would agree with me that most of the folks that ask you how you're doing don't really want to know? 80% of them don't even want to know, and the other 20% are glad it's you and not them. And another thing, be very careful who you share your dreams with. Be very careful who you share your dreams with because reactive people are going to treat your precious dreams like a clay pigeon at a ski shoot. You're going to come in the house all excited, been to an opportunity meeting, been to a conference, and you're going to sit down and say, I'm not going to believe what's happening. We are in a great global economic shift. Our economy is changing. That's the bad news, but the good news is that we are in an industry that's going to provide us with the greatest economic opportunity we've ever had for the first time in our lives. We have easy access to the free enterprise system. Darling, hear me out. No. <laughs> They're going to sit there with that sagacious expression on their face. Losers tend to look sagacious at times. Let's see now. As I recall, there was Amway, and then there was Mary Kay, then there was Tupperware, then there was the Chinchilla Farm, and then, you know. I can tell you ten reasons why this company is never going to get off the ground. And if they do, I can give you a hundred reasons why they won't last more than two years. I love the way reactive negative people can be so precise. I mean, one reason will do. Either it works or it don't. But they can give you 99 more to make sure that sucker's dead. Just in case there's a flicker of hope left in your eyes. I'm sorry, but I get so tired of the losers driving their Edsels with the Nixon Agnew bumper stickers, crawling out in their polyester double-knit suits, huff puppies and bad haircuts, telling me it can't be done. Hang out with folks that believe it can be done. If you want to make $150,000 a year, don't hang out with folks that are making $20,000 a year. Saying, yeah, but what if I'm married to them? Well, I don't know what to tell you on that. <laughs> Proactive people think in terms of solutions. S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S. That's a U. Okay. Okay. <laughs> There's got to be a solution out there somewhere. Would you agree we live in a very negative society? That's the reason we need these kinds of conferences. Well, all the raw, raw, we don't go in there and all the motivation when you went in there. Both. Yes, I am. I need motivated. I need somebody to light a fire under my butt every once in a while. They're all sitting there looking at me like, Richard. We live in a very negative world. Most of what makes the front page of the paper is negative. Just on and on, the same, oh, same, oh, same. If I never hear of the Menendez brothers again, when are they going to go away? <laughs> and Tanya Harding and Joey Badafuco and all the Bobbitt and Jason. Elvis is dead! <laughs> Comes a time when you just move on. Seven wisest words I ever heard in my life are when the horse is dead, get off. 
You can stroke it and groom it and feed it, but when it's dead, it's dead. My management style is, please don't come to me with your problem. You know, if you haven't given some time to solutions, I made the calls and I read the books and I listened to the tapes and I just... And you know, if you're like, well, would you like to have a little bread and cheese to go with your wine? <laughs> Proactive people think in terms of solutions. Reactive people plagued by guilt. Now, understand good guilt. Good guilt. I just finished writing a work called How to Survive the Death of a Dream So You Can Live the Dream Again. It's all about turning life's challenges into personal achievement. I have a background as a counselor. I understand the role of guilt in the recovery process. There's good guilt, but then there's bad guilt. You know, good guilt is when you repent, make restitution, and move on. Bad guilt is when you're just beating yourself over the head all the time, and you just, you know, I mean, people with character disorders, you know, they're the kind of folk that make everybody around them miserable. Neurotic folk, they make themselves miserable. They just, you know, it was me. I'm the one. I'm behind the Great Depression and the Holocaust. I killed Jimmy Hoffa. It wasn't OJ. It was me, you know, and just on and on. Let me tell you something. You can have too much therapy, I swear. And I have been involved in on the, the counselor's side of the desk, and you can have too much of that stuff. Let me tell you, when you walk into, you know, a, a, a grocery store, and you check your groceries, and they've rung up your bill, and you're starting to write a check, and as you hand that check to the cashier, that cashier looks at the check and says, I need your driver's license, and I need your bank guarantee card. You know you've been watching too much Oprah. If when you hear her say, I need your bank card... You need. You need. Why is that all I ever hear? You need. What about my needs? When you can't even go to a football game because every time the team goes into a huddle, you think they're talking about you. You probably had too much. I swear, and I have no problem with recovery movement, I have no problem with 12-step programs, but where is it written that we must define ourselves by the deficits in our character? I slide into a seat, we're waiting for the, the flight to take off, and the flight attendant comes by, can I get you anything to drink, Mr. Nye? I guess I'll have a nice white wine, so we sit there, and we're uh, chit-chatting. I turn to the person next to me, well, him I know that we're going to fly from Phoenix to Atlanta. i got three and a half hours with this guy. I nod, I smile, hi, how are you? My name's Richard Nyhart. Hi, I'm Maury Seymour. What do you do for a living, Richard? Well, I'm a professional public speaker, whatever that means. Uh, no, put your wallet away, uh, Harvey, I'm not on duty right now. What about you, uh, Harvey? And, and Harvey says, well... I'm the adult child of an alcoholic codependent with a marginal obsessive compulsion. You can watch too much of this stuff. I swear, and I know I got three and a half hours next to this guy. Now, this word, I learned this from John Bradshaw. You can try it. If it works for you, fine. If not, just forget it. But if you're on a long flight and you don't want to be bothered, you don't want anybody talking about you, I found that by just simply putting a piece of string in my nose. No, I swear it'll work. People will leave you alone. Even the flight attendants will leave you alone. Proactive people are into change. They're into change. And that's, that's really what this time in our lives is all about and the lives of the people in your organizations are all about. But I'm, I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But before I do, here's the swan song of all reactive people. I'll try. Everybody say, I'll try. Oh, that's powerful. Now, I'm not up here to play word games. Before the day is over, I'll probably use the term try. But with respect to our transcendent dreams, what is wrong with try? You're not going to do it? It's a cop-out? Can you really try anything? Has anybody ever tried skydiving? 
Besides, besides Rob. Yeah, Rob, you're a skydiver. Stand up. How tall were you before you started skydiving? <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, one guy shared the experience with us. He said, oh, well, we went up on the airplane, and we got us about 10,000 feet. They opened the door, and um, well, it was real windy, and it was real cold. And I looked down, and it was a lot higher than what I thought it would be. <laughs> so I told him to shut the door. I said, you didn't jump? He said, no, but I tried. <laughs> I said, no, that's not, not it at all, sir. You basically went for an airplane ride with a parachute on. Yeah, yeah. Cal, if I'm drowning in a river, don't come running. Oh, y'all are from New Mexico. Sorry, a river is a body of water. It's kind of slow. Yeah. Um, if I'm drowning in a river, don't come running up to the bank and say, hang on, Richard, I'm going to try and get some help. Please do not try and get some help. Get some help. I'm a dead man. Yeah. There's really no such thing as try. It's kind of like what Yoda said to Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back. Try? What is try? Either do or not do. There is no try. What about proactive people? Are they going to try? What about them? They're going to do it. Everybody say do it. It comes down to the doing, folks. And I wish I could stand up here and tell you that it's always going to be easy. It's not always going to be easy. But fortunately, it's not always going to be hard. But if it's easy, do it easy. If it's hard, do it hard. But either way, just get it done. Proactive people, they're going to do it. Now, let's come back to change. Is it possible for us and the people in our organizations to make these kinds of changes? Is it possible at this age? I mean, we're not kids anymore. I mean, I'm going to be 44 in a few weeks. I know exactly what you're thinking. <laughs> I know I don't look it. Thank you for that. You're so kind. You're so spontaneous. <laughs> Can we make these kinds of changes? Can we? Yeah? Garvin says sometimes you can. It, it is po- it, it, you're saying, though, that it, that it is possible for people to change? Yeah? Okay. What about genetics? What about environment? How many of you, the older you get, the more, you know, you start reminding yourself of your parents? It's kind of scary, ain't it? <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, most of us believe it's possible to change. How many morning people do we have here? By that, I mean your energy level is highest early in the morning. Let me see your hands. Okay? Yeah, you're the people in the, in the room next to mine. It's 4.30. You've got the TV on. The shower is on. You're singing, oh, what a beautiful And I'm over there in the pre-dawn feeling around for my shotgun. How many night people do we have here? Come on, night people. Let me see your hands. Come on, night people. Don't you think if God would have wanted us to see sunrises, he could have made them later in the day? That's right. The kid dad kicked him out of the house and said, go get a job. So the kid goes out, spends a couple of days. Somebody hires him and says, I want you back here tomorrow at 6 to move this stuff. So the next evening he shows up. <laughs> and the guy's backing out his truck. And the kid walks up with a big silly smile and says, well, where do we start? And the boss gives him this hairy eyeball and says, I told you to be here at 6. And the kid looks at his watch and he says, well, it's 5 till. He said, I'm in 6 this morning. He looks at his watch again and goes, well, dude, you, you mean there's two of them? <laughs> people. Night people. Let me see the hands of the night people again. Come on, night people. All right. Now, let's just say we are on an island. And this is called Paradise Unlimited. And we've got five weeks of fun in the sun. 
Now, there's nothing for you to do, nowhere for you to go. How many of you, at my suggestion, and we go back all of about 45 minutes here, how many of you on the basis of my suggestion would get up at 5 o'clock every morning for the next five weeks? Let me see your hands. How many of you, all right? Great. How many of you say, now, heart, you're going to have to do better than that? Let me see your hand. All right. What did I leave out? A re- oh, you want a reason. You want a why, do you? How many of you... What? You're still up. You're just going to stay up, all right? Where are you from? Toronto. Toronto. Yeah. Oh, you got some fans back here. Y'all love Toronto. All right. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't give you a good enough reason, is that it? What if I gave you a good enough reason? Would you at least reconsider? How many of y'all know what a 357 Magnum is? <laughs> the powerful handgun leaves a big hole. What if I said, I'm not asking, I'm telling. I want you up at 5 o'clock every morning for the next five weeks, or boom, your history. Now what are you going to say? Yeah. I'll try. <laughs> are you going to try? I ain't going to try. I'm going to do it. It's what I call the R word, and it's not revolver. It's reason, and I want you to remember this, ladies and gentlemen. You can be, do, and have anything you want in your life, personally or professionally, if you have a good enough reason. And I'm convinced this is where we're missing it in America and in Canada. North America, places that have thriving economies, we don't have a good enough reason. And I submit that making a lot of money someday is not a good enough reason. If making a lot of money someday were a strong enough motivation, there would be more Ferraris and less Fords. There would be more Armanis and less Wards. There would be more horse ranches and beachfront properties and less high-density apartment complexes and trailer parks. You see, this is North America. We can boast of the most affluent society in the history of the world. Were we to use Maslow's pyramid as a point of reference, 98% of our physiological needs are met at any given moment of the day. We're coming out of an industrial age where our jobs were secured by organized labor. We've been environed and conditioned to having everything right there at our fingertips. We really don't have strong enough reasons to do what we do. Once you can identify those reasons, ladies and gentlemen, you can be, do, and have anything that you want. Picture a grandmother driving down a country road. As she drives down the road, she listens to a grandbaby in the back seat of the car. The grandbaby's strapped in, playing with a baby doll, singing her little grandbaby's songs. And as grandmother comes around the curve, a pickup truck swerves into her path. She sees a certain head-on collision. To avert this collision thread, she instinctively wrenches on the wheel, and the car leaves the road. As it hits the ditch, it flips, and it rolls in a sickening thud, 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 over and over, finally rumbling to a rest on its roof. This grandmother crawls out through that windshield. Her clothing is ripped. Her body is gashed. As she stands there in front of this overturned car with blood, hot red blood running down her face, this car swims into focus. She sees the wheels spinning. She smells the smoke. And at the very instant, she sees the first flames burst from that engine and start dancing down that chassis towards the gas tank. She hears a horrified scream. Grandma, Grandma, 
She looks down and she sees two tiny tennis shoes sticking out from underneath that overturned car. What is that grandmother able to do? She can lift that car. Dave, how can she do it? How can she do it? We can talk about endorphins. We can talk about adrenaline. I submit she is able to do in those circumstances what she cannot do otherwise because she has a good enough reason. And ladies and gentlemen, we ourselves are on the cusp of new opportunities. We're some of us entering into uncharted territory. And not only are we venturing where we've never been before, but we're bringing along behind us men and women that are sharing our aspirations and our hopes for the future. And let me tell you something, that constant attrition of just the day-to-day living and the fear of the no and that sense of rejection and the procrastination and I'm tired and I'm still working my job how I'm going to do this. I don't have a background in sales and I don't have developed social graces and I'm not a great communicator and I don't have a broad point of reference as far as I'm saying how. Let me tell you something, folks. You can be, do, and have anything you want if you give yourself a good enough reason. You'll find a way to get this done. And I don't know what your reasons are going to be. I don't know what your reasons are going to be. They vary from person to person. But once we identify them, they become that primary motive force that drives us in the direction of our dreams. How many, how many parents do we have here that have children under, under the age of 12? Any parents that have a children under the age of 12? You're, these are the girls from Toronto? No, you're not, no, you're from, are y'all from Toronto too? Are you no. white? From Cal- oh, you're from Alberta. Okay. What's your name? Trish. Trish. Hi, Trish. I'm Richard. Nice to meet you. You have a child under the age of 12? Mm-hmm. The name? Uh, two. Two. Okay. Well, the youngest? Davis. Davis? Davis? How old is Davis? Four. Davis is four. All right. Trish has a four-year-old son. His name is Davis. She's from Calgary. Okay. Now, uh, I, would, I would suggest that you're somewhat money-motivated. You wouldn't be in the industry. You like money? I like money. Y'all like money? Yeah. I like it. I've had it and I've not had it and having it's better. <laughs> I like the color. It, it just goes so well with everything. <laughs> yeah. Now, Trish, uh, do you know what I mean by an I-beam? You know, so many, you know it, it's a steel beam. It's kind of holding up this hotel here. Underneath all this plaster and stuff are I-beams. Okay, you know what I mean by an I-beam? Okay, when you look at it on the end, it looks like an I. Except when you turn it up on its side, then it looks like an H, and you have to call it an H-beam, I guess. Uh, no, okay, it's an I-beam. Now, let's just, let's just say that there's an I-beam, and it's stretched uh, the length of this, of this uh, auditorium. It's 120 feet long, all right? It's right on the ground. It's about this wide, and it's about this deep, all right? Would you be willing to walk the length of that I-beam without stepping off for $100? Sure. Sure, no problem. Okay, do it. Now, I want you to stay with me, okay? Because we're going to load up this I-beam, and we're fixing to take it across the country. Have you ever been to New York City? Never been to New York City, but you've seen pictures of New York City. Okay, y'all from from Toronto, you've been to New York City. I'm I'm assuming. Been to the top of the Trade Towers. Okay, these are the two tallest buildings in the world. How many of y'all ever been to the top of the Trade Towers? The two tallest buildings in the world. They are 1,350 feet tall, folks. Yeah, they are so tall that they have a built-in sway factor of six to ten feet. When you're up that high, the wind is blowing anywhere from 30 to 65 miles an hour. Yeah. Okay. Now, what we've done, she's, uh, yeah, she's ahead of me here. We've laid this I-beam between them. You don't want to make another $100? You sure? She wouldn't do it? The wind's bl- it's raining. Not a bad rain. Kind of a drizzle. Wind, the wind's not bad, uh, Trish. It's only blowing about 35, gusts up to 45. You wouldn't do it. Upper 100, would you do it for 1,000? No. Would you do it for 10,000? Would you do it for 50,000? 
Would you do for half a million? A million? Tax free? <laughs> You're from Canada, yeah, that means a lot. She wouldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. She would not walk that avenue, that same avenue, she wouldn't do it for a million tax free dollars. Now I'm fixing to make you mad at me, but don't hit. Because I'm old and I have a very low threshold of pain. Okay, now let's just say that I'll leave and you look across and as the clouds part, you see some sinister figure and in his hands is your four-year-old baby boy and his Davis. And he's holding that child out over the side and he's threatening to drop the child unless you come. Now what are you going to do? Now she'll walk. Now she'll, she will do for her child what she would not do for a million tax-free dollars. And you'd probably make it. Because what we've just identified is your good enough reason. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, when you can identify those reasons, you can be, you can do and have anything you want. You can do things that under normal circumstances you cannot do. I'm passionate about this. I know that I come on strong, but I had to fight my way to this point. Uh, I know it's easy to, to assume that you know, I was just always out and about. And it's interesting as we, the plane settled down over Las Vegas last evening, sitting there in the first class section. I thought, wow, <laughs> who would have ever thought that I'd reach a point in my life where I'd be flying in to speak to such an august body as the Multilevel Marketing International Association. I know that we have corporate directors here. I know that you've forgotten more than what I may know about the industry. And I feel so very fortunate to be a part of something that is an answer and is a hope to so many people. I carry this watch to kind of remind me of where I started, kind of keeps me on track. See my watch? And you'd never guess from my urbane mannerisms and sophistication, but <laughs> I'm one generation removed from a hillbilly hog ranch replete with outhouse and, and bootleg whiskey. <laughs> yeah. Now, I want you, this is the first time anybody outside of my immediate family has ever seen these. This is where I started. <laughs> that was my house. Right there, yeah. <laughs> I've had the suspenders, yeah, been around. <laughs> that was my house. You want to see my house? That's the 47 school bus. That was my house. That's where we lived. Here's another pretty cool one. I've never wanted to show these because I've always been ashamed of my past. I thought people would think less of me if they knew how poor we were. That tent, that was our house. Whoops, it's over on the wrong side. That was my closet. I carry this watch to remind me of where I started in life. This watch... This watch is the watch my father was wearing when he was killed in a car wreck almost four years ago. I never really knew my father all that well, but I knew him to be an intelligent man. I knew him to be an articulate man. I carry this watch not because I knew him so well. I carry it because of what it says to me with respect to my own dreams and my own purpose in life. My father was killed on Christmas Day. I was, I was born on Christmas Day. My father was 40 when I was born, and I turned 40 the day that he was killed. 
And I'm not off into hocus-pocus, but if ever it seemed that life was trying to say something to me, it, it was at that time. I'll never forget sitting up the night after my father's funeral. Set up late into the wee hours of the morning, and I asked my oldest brother about my father. One of the questions I asked him was, Why? Why was it that our father, being so bright, being so articulate, the kind of man that could discuss intelligently almost any subject from politics to prunes, why did he die so poor? After 80 years on this earth, my father's total accumulated wealth amounted to less than $30,000. Why? And I'll never forget what my brother told me. He said, you know, Rick, I really believe that our father got more pleasure from telling people what he was going to do than from doing it. And that cut through me like a knife. And Garvin, I realized that within my nature, I may well have the genetic predisposition towards dreaming without doing, projecting without performing. Easier to preach than to practice. He lived his life that way. And I think we've all got to come to a place in our lives where we want something more than that. It's like the great Indian poet, philosopher, Robin Ganeth Tagora. He said, I'm dying with my songs of life left unsung. I've spent my entire life stringing and restringing my instrument. A couple of nights ago, I flew in from Syracuse, New York. It was Thanksgiving. I was laying back on my bed, just kind of channel surfing, just kind of vegging out. And I come across a movie called Educate and Rita. It was about a young English girl that came out of a working class section of England. And she decided that she wanted to leave the crudity and the vulgarity into the world of Proust and Yeats and Shakespeare. She was in a family that didn't want her to change. How many of you know it's the people that are closest to us that are going to want to hold us back? And she went to a tutor played by Michael Caine and he lent her some books, valuable books. And While her husband was downstairs banging on the walls, she was upstairs stretched across the bed with her nose in the books. And to listen to her talk, you'd never guess that she was anywhere within a million miles of the world of Shakespeare and Tchaikovsky. And instead of going to the pubs, she'd go to the tutor. And one night her husband flew into a maniacal fury, picked up the books, went out behind the house, made a pile, ignited the books into a fire. She watched as her Shakespeare and her Tchaikovsky and her prowess went up in flames. She didn't go to the tutor that night. She went to the pub. She sat there in the pub and she listened as all the working folk sang their body vulgar songs. She got up and she walked out. And the next scene finds her coming back. She never knocked. She just always pushed his door open and walked in like she had a right to be there. She stood in front of her tutor. He was saying, where have you been? I've wondered where you are. Why didn't you come? She said, uh, went to the pub. She said, and you know, she said I was sitting in the pub and everyone was a singing. I was singing the drinking songs. And as I was sitting there with the beer and I was listening to the songs, she said, I turned and I looked at my mom. My mom was quiet. My mom was crying. And there was tears running down my mom's cheeks. 
My mum was saying, surely there must be better songs to sing. And that's why I'm back. Give me some more books and let's get on with the learning. There's a lot of people that are living in our cities. They're on our freeways. Going to the dead-end jobs. They're wondering about an uncertain future. And they may not put it like that, but they're just wondering. Believing that surely there's got to be some better songs to sing. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what network marketing is all about. Is giving this country a better song to sing. And the people that are going to learn that song are going to learn it because they're hungry. That's why I carry this watch. That's why I look at these pictures from time to time. I found, kind of like the way Les puts it, he said, if you want a thing bad enough to go out and fight for it, to work day and night for it, to give up your time and your peace and your sleep for it, and if all that you dream and scheme is about it and life seems useless and worthless without it, and if you gladly sweat for it and fret for it and plan for it and lose all of your terribly opposition for it, and if you go after what you want with all your capacity and your strength and sagacity and your faith, hope, confidence and stern pertinacity, if neither cold, poverty, famine or drought or sickness or strain on your body or brain can keep you away from the thing that you want, if dark and grim you'll besiege and beset it, then with the help of God, you'll get it. And that's all I got to say. Thank you very much. Thank you. I don't really have a lot more to add or anything I can say. I mean, Richard Nyhart tried to communicate to the good old Boys and Girls Network 30 years ago at this event that you have to build your business not based upon personality, but systematically. And if we just stop and look what's going on today, I mean, all the mergers and acquisitions and companies and, you know, these four companies coming together to do something that's never been done. And this company and that company's coming together and we're going to do this. And everybody's, you're seeing mergers and acquisitions and, you know, pay $9.97 to become a member to buy wholesale products and all these gimmick compensation plans. I mean, Everybody seems to be just grasping for straws. Uh, company volumes are down in the United States across the board. You know, I've heard anywhere from 24 to 40%. Uh, as we continue as an, as a industry to retread, and this is important, a diminishing group of people, the number of people we can retread, that, that number is decreasing every single year. Uh, people are sick and tired of the hype. They're sick and tired of the fluff. They're sick and tired of what's been going on the last, especially 20 years in this industry. And to me, somebody that this, the network marketing industry has absolutely changed my life. It's sad. It's real sad. And if you're sick of it, you know, if you're really sick of it, you probably wouldn't be listening to this audio. But if you're concerned, if you're, if you're, disrupted if you don't know what you should be doing or where you should be doing it or who to believe. I mean, if you're sick of it, before you throw in the towel, just do me a 
do me a favor, do yourself a favor, and I don't care if that's six months from now or next month or four years from now. Uh, take the time and look up a, a, a video that I just, I just released it this week. Uh, but you'll always be able to find it. It's at www.themlmbox.com. And if it speaks to you, whenever you happen to run across it or see it, if we should talk, let me know. Uh, I hope you enjoyed Richard Nyhart. I hope that spoke to you. Uh, until next week, this is Dale Calvert. Thanks for listening. As always, uh, you know, your comments, your feedback are appreciated. Have an awesome week, and we'll talk to you next week on a, another session of the New Era of Wealth Building Podcast. Did you enjoy this story? Then you will probably enjoy some of the other sessions of this podcast. You can visit MLMSuccess.com and see a full playlist of the podcast since the day we started. Would you like to put some faces with the voices? Then search for Dale Calvert MLM Success Podcast on YouTube and follow us there. Please leave a comment on YouTube and let our special guests know how their story inspired you or affected you. Dale spends most of his social media time in private groups he has founded, but you can follow his public Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Dale Calvert page. And of course, your comments and feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you access this podcast is always appreciated. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week and share with you another real success story that is happening right now in this new era of wealth creation that most still don't know exist yet.